Well, today is certainly a special day for we as a church are commissioning Kevin and Catherine Bell to be missionaries abroad. It is therefore a good day to talk to you for a moment about serving the Lord. And it doesn't really matter ultimately whether it's serving the Lord in missions somewhere around the globe or serving the Lord in the ministries of this church, or serving the Lord in the context of your daily life at work and at home, regardless of the venue and regardless of the setting, there are some perspectives necessary for us to be effective. When I say perspectives, I'm talking about the thinking that we must continually go back to that will help stir up passion and zeal for serving the Lord. What thinking is that? It is biblical thinking about God. I can just tell you that I personally, when, when I return to what Scripture says about God, then I do once again find this realize this great joy that is there in serving Him. I realize once again what makes ministry effective, and I understand more clearly once again what my role is. Now, I could take you to many different passages in God's Word, of course, that will give us a correct and a a high view of God, but I think for our purposes this morning, because of the special nature of this day, I believe that Isaiah chapter 6 is appropriate, so please turn with me to the 6th chapter of Isaiah. Here we find the account of Isaiah's call to ministry. Now this call is found specifically in verses 1 to 8 of Isaiah 6, which as we know is Isaiah's great vision of the Lord. Now, this is an incredible scene. We have visited it before. But as we study this scene together, I want us to note three essential facts about God that form the basis for all effective ministry for God. And again, that's true whether it's in another country or here in North Carolina. Three facts about God. Here's the first crucial fact about God that we identify in this passage. Number one, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Verse 1 of chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. This King Uzziah was overall a decent king, we could say. He did reign for over 50 years, but we really don't know, based on the wording of this verse, whether Uzziah was actually dead at the time that this vision took place or whether the verse is possibly just meaning that the death and the vision happened in the same year. Regardless, the point of our study is not Uzziah. It's the truth about God that we find here. And in verse 1, Isaiah says he saw the Lord. Now, there's an important question we need to answer. How is that even possible? After all, We do find in John 1 verse 18 that no man has seen God at any time. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 16, the apostle Paul writes that the Lord is someone whom 
Paul says, no man has seen or can see. Well, the answer is that what we have here in Isaiah chapter 6 is a vision. A vision not of literally the, the internal essence of God. I mean, God is spiritual. He is invisible. But even though it is a vision, we should conclude it was a true experience that Isaiah had. He saw something in this unusual vision, and he tells us in verse 1, it was the Lord. Now, that is the Hebrew term Adonai. Adonai essentially means sovereign master. Therefore, this is the name that proclaims something about the Lord. It proclaims that he sovereignly carries out all his purposes because he's Adonai, and other verses in Scripture certainly support that reality about God. Daniel 4, verse 35, he, God, does according to his will in the host of heaven, and no one can ward off his hand. Job 42, verse 2, at the end of his great trials, Job learned this and says to God, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. There are plenty of people who don't believe that today, who claim to know him. They somehow think that God is in heaven wringing his hands sometimes and trying to figure out what to do, or that God is still adapting and having to learn as he goes that there are things confusing to God, or that there are answers he just can't give, or that there are problems he just can't fix. That's not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is the one who sits in heaven and does whatever he pleases, and no man can thwart his will at all. So likewise, here in Isaiah chapter 6, we find a picture of that reality about God, God's complete sovereignty. And there are other terms that Isaiah gives to us that support this scene of sovereignty. He says in verse 1 that he saw Adonai sitting on a throne. That's significant because that's what judges would do. They would sit on thrones. It's what kings would do. So this idea of sitting on the throne is a picture of something. It's a picture of complete sovereign authority. Plus, Isaiah says, this Adonai was lofty and exalted. Lofty is a statement that is a reference to his his nature being lofty, and he's exalted because of his sovereign authority. And then we find another expression, his robe filled the temple. That's a symbolic way of expressing the idea that God was so present in all of his glorious majesty, that there was no room for any other gods. He's the only one. What a vision Isaiah had of Adonai on the throne, lofty and exalted. In fact, it's a, a vision that left Isaiah silent, speechless, at least for a while. Well, the question is, for our purposes today, what does this have to do with missions? What does it have to do with any kind of ministry? Here's how it connects. And I can speak, certainly, in my experience as a pastor, 
It connects because this truth about God gives me incredible joy when I contemplate and marvel at who He is and at His complete sovereignty. But it would do the same thing in my heart if I was a missionary in another land or serving in a children's class here on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or involved in music ministry or student ministry. Regardless of the ministry opportunity, I need to know this truth. I need to know that this is the kind of God that I'm serving, that He's a God whose will is never thwarted by man's will. It's never thwarted by my weakness or my frailty, my mistakes. His will is not even thwarted by my sin. I need to serve a God whose purposes will be accomplished. And we do serve this kind of God. So practically speaking, what does that mean? We're on the winning side. If we're pursuing God's purposes, we are actually part of an enterprise whose end is already decided. We're part of this eternal plan that God is literally administering or orchestrating as this omnipotent sovereign of the universe. Hold your place there, but turn over to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. I love the book of Ephesians, and I believe this is one of my favorite verses in the book of Ephesians, along with all the other verses in chapters 1 through 6. Ephesians 1 verse 10, it's talking about in Christ, things being summed up in Christ, verse 10, but here's how he says it. Let me go back to verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration. And that's the idea of, of a divine heavenly administrator orchestrating things, controlling things sovereignly, suitable to the fullness of the times for this purpose. Here it is. Here's where everything's headed. And nothing will stop it. The summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. That's what we're a part of. That's what God is using us for. Just another verse that relates to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28, puts it this way, that in the end, God will be all in all. So all of this is encouraging, especially when I find that ministry can be difficult. It's encouraging to you when, when people don't respond to spiritual things the way you think they should or, or when it might appear that we're not accomplishing all that we had hoped. This is what we go back to. The truth that God is in control and that He is moving everything toward the end that He has already determined. If I don't believe that about God... I have designed God according to my own mind, and I'm defining Him the way I want. But this is who He is. God is sovereign. There's a second essential fact about God that, again, forms the basis for all effective, joyous ministry for God. Number two, God is holy. God is holy. Verse 2, seraphim stood above Him. Now, this is one of several heavenly beings that's mentioned in Scripture. We find reference to, references to angels and archangels and principalities and powers and cherubim. Here we find 
that there were these heavenly attendants called seraphim. That's the plural form of the singular seraph, S-E-R-A-P-H. And this is the only place in Scripture that we find them referenced right here, the seraphim. Now, the term seraph literally means a burning one, a burning one. It's because of their appearance, their their extremely bright appearance. And they're obviously very high-ranking angels. Look where they are. They are around this throne of Adonai. And they're engaged in continual service, continual praise of Adonai. So what a sight this must have been for Isaiah. And we don't know how many there were. But it seems to indicate there's, it was likely an innumerable company of them. Uh, 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 such a host that it would be impossible to count them. And they seem to be on fire, seraphs, burning ones. Isaiah sees them like, like flames, huge flames, all hovering around this one on the throne, ready to do whatever he wants them to do, to do his will. And here's what Isaiah more specifically saw them doing, verse 2. They were covering their face and their feet. Why? Well, that's a sign of reverence. That's a sign of awe before the Lord. So here are these, these seraphs are so bright, they, bright, they're like burning ones, and yet the one on the throne, Adonai, is so much brighter, manifesting such an even greater brightness that the seraphim, the bright ones, the burning ones, had to cover their faces out of reverence. But what was it more specifically about Adonai that prompted all this reverence and godly fear and worship? The one on the throne was completely holy, verse 3. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The verb called out, or you could translate it cried out, indicates that they weren't just whispering this. They were proclaiming their message with great zeal and great fervency. And there appears to have been two different groups. They're organized. They're singing and crying out to one another. We would call that an antiphonal chant. And they cried out to one another, holy, holy, holy. In English, we have a way of of expressing degree. We call it comparative and superlative. We might say something is higher, but something else is highest. This is great. This is greater. This is greatest. In Hebrew, they would express that superlative idea by repeating it three times. So this threefold repetition is that Hebrew way of expressing the highest form of something, the act... Uh, absolute totality of something. And it was their continuous occupation. They're uninterrupted in this, extolling the Lord for His holiness. It's a great Hebrew word for holy. It's kadosh. It's a word that signifies separateness. That God is so completely perfect and so completely holy that He is then different from His creation. He is separate from His creation. 
And this is the only attribute of God, God's separateness that is proclaimed in this superlative way in Scripture, this threefold repetition, even though God is expressed in other perfections and other attributes. We know that He is love, but Scripture doesn't present it that way, that He's love, love, love. We know that God is perfectly just, but God's Word never says it in a superlative way, that He's just, just, just. But holiness, He is separate, 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 because holiness is supremely the truth about His essence. He is perfectly this way, perfectly holy. He is infinitely holy. He is eternally holy. And this vision of holiness evidently had a profound effect on Isaiah because the theme of God's holiness keeps coming up in the book. In the rest of Isaiah, the divine holiness of God is a, is a major theme of importance. Even the phrase, Holy One of Israel, occurs about 26 times or so. That lets us know Isaiah never forgot this vision of God. And once again, this is a fact about God that is important to understand when it comes to ministry, when it comes to missions, that God is different than us. I mean, you don't want to move your family to another country. You don't want to go to another culture to give your life serving a God who's kind of like the people at Twin City Bible Church, a God of our own design. The message is not about a God like that. It's not a God according to our own definitions. Why do we not want to serve a God like that? Because that enterprise is destined to fail. But God's not like that. He's separate from us. That means He's not dependent on us in any way. He uses us by His grace, but He's not dependent on us. He is self-existence. He has His own self-existence. There's no cause of His existence outside Himself. And so everything about our mission is something outside of us then. Everything about our message that we preach is outside of us. It's an outside message to all the nations, all the cultures. That's the message they need to hear. And it's the answer to their problem because their problem is something inside of them. That's the problem of every person, something inside of them. And the solution for every person is something outside of them. And so the solution is found in this one, Adonai, the one upon the throne, the one who's holy, the one who is self-existent, the one who exists, exists distinct from and independent from everything he's created. So here these seraphim are in this antiphonal chant and just setting forth this distinguishing characteristic of God, his weightiness, his holiness. In fact, we get even more of that idea in the next phrase, the whole earth is full of his glory. That term for glory, the Hebrew term kavod, means weightiness. It means a sense of heaviness. God is, is heavy when it comes to his, his being, the perfections of who he is. And God manifests that, his weightiness, the heaviness of his character in his glory. And Isaiah says the whole earth is full of it. 
It lets us know that the entire creation declares this about God. It is declaring divine heaviness, weightiness, this divine glory. And it doesn't matter where we look if we have the eyes of faith. Everywhere we look, we will see the evidence of His holiness, His glory, His weightiness. We'll see the evidence of His majesty, the evidence of His splendor and His dignity, His glory. Well, go back to the vision, Isaiah standing there, and something else began to happen, verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out, I mean, there was such power in all this praise by these, this group of uncountable seraphim, burning ones, praising God, such force in that, such power that this vision temple, cathedral, began to shake. The, the very thresholds of it began to tremble. Maybe you've been in an auditorium somewhere where there was a pipe organ, and boy, when it hits those bass notes, you can, you can feel the you know, the walls and the foundation shaking. Or maybe it's just that car that pulls up next to you at the red light, you know, with a, you know, six-foot-long woofer in the back. And California, you would check to see if you're in an earthquake or if it's a car next to you. It could be either one of those. could be someone just telling the world, hey, look at me. Verse 4 tells us something else happened. In the room, filled with smoke. I mean, this is enough as it is. All these burning ones hovering around the throne. You can't count them. There's so many. They're praising God. The thing begins to shake, and it begins to fill up with smoke. In Scripture, you find this as a symbolic representation of the presence of God. It happened in Exodus 40, when the tabernacle was set up, you certainly see an example in 1 Kings 8 at Solomon's dedication of the temple. The smoke representing the presence of God. All of this is just adding together to present this scene of reverence, sovereign reverence, solemn awe, because Isaiah was in the presence of a holy God. But once again, here's the point for our purposes. Our joy... Our confidence in ministry and missions, they increase when we remember that this is who God is. When we meditate meditate upon Him and His perfections as they are revealed in Scripture, but the opposite is true if God is not who He says He is. I mean, if we're serving a God, trying to serve a God that we're defining of just being a little better than us, or serving a God who can fail in some way, or who doesn't know what's going on, or has no answers, or can't figure out what's next, or learning and adapting as He goes, we would be in despair when it comes to ministry. It doesn't matter whether we're here or around the world. I'm just telling you, I would not want to give my life to serving a God like that. But what a joy it is to know that He'll never fail. He always does what's perfectly good and right and just, even if I can't connect all the dots, because He is perfectly and completely holy. There's another side to the holiness of God, though, if you contemplate it. There's a devastating side, because we're such sinners. So this third fact about God is crucial to understand when it comes to ministry. Gratefully, number three, God is merciful. 
He's sovereign. He's holy. He's merciful. Let me remind you of the question asked by the psalmist in Psalm 24, verse 3. The psalmist asks, who may stand in his holy place? Verse 4 answers it. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands this morning of who has clean hands and a pure heart. No one meets that description. No human being ever measures up to that, including Isaiah, and he knew that. It's not that he was a, the worst man that ever lived. He likely was not, probably a respected man. But when faced with the holiness of God, he was, Isaiah, overwhelmed with his own unworthiness. Look at verse 5. Then I said, woe is me. That's what a vision of God does. It gives you a clear view of yourself as well, your own uncleanness. Therefore, Isaiah was terrified. He says, whoa. In one word, it's a word that is a passionate cry of grief and despair and hopelessness. And he adds the thought, I am ruined. It means I'm undone. I'm doomed to die. It's over. And what made his self-evaluation so terrifying is that it was true. He was accurate. It's true of every person. If God only deals with people in strict justice. Now, Isaiah gets more specific here about himself. More honest. Verse 5. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. This represents something when he says lips. Keep in mind what he's just seen and heard. All these burning seraphim proclaiming the, the praises of God and the glories of God. And Isaiah knew that I can't get my lips to do that. I don't deserve to do that. My lips, my tongue... They're stained with sin, and that's a representation of the fact that Isaiah Isaiah knew that his heart was unclean. And this is true of each of us. One writer put it this way, we speak the language of an unclean heart. We're influenced, so influenced by the world around us, the culture around us, that we so easily begin to learn and then to speak its language with our lives. And that is what we find out about ourselves if we compare ourselves with the right thing. Not other people. We compare ourselves with the nature of God as He's revealed in Scripture. So Isaiah adds this, that's what I've seen. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord, of hosts. But this time he doesn't say Adonai in the Hebrew. This time it's Yahweh, the eternal God, the self-existent God, the covenant God. And this eternal, ever-present God is the Lord of the whole host of everything he's created. This description is really just driving the point home, emphasizing even more the infinite distance between this holy God and sinful creatures. So what hope could Isaiah possibly have? What hope does anyone have? We're all the same ultimately. 
We've all inherited the same disease. We've all been impacted by the same pandemic, sin. So how could we ever give our lives in ministry when we're going to have to proclaim the glories of God? Knowing we're so sinful, knowing we're so unworthy of serving Him, it's hopeless except for one very important fact. God is merciful. He is a God who loves to forgive repentant sinners. Therefore, God Himself provides the cleansing that sinners need, and we see it pictured here in this vision. He provided the cleansing that Isaiah needed. As our text continues, we find that God directed, Adonai, Yahweh directed one of these angelic beings to do something. They would not have chosen to do this of their own accord. They were there to do His bidding. God initiates this. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand. Stop there. If he wasn't undone yet... Surely now. I mean, the seraphim, the shaking, the smoke, and now one of these burning ones begins to float and hover toward him with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. There was an altar in this scene. So visualize this. One seraphim leaving the rest of the throng taking a burning stone from the altar, and the altar is representing sacrifice, sacrificial offerings. We understand that in the Old Testament system. All the animals that were sacrificed to satisfy God for sin, we learn that in the New Testament even more clearly that the idea is to propitiate God. Propitiation is, is satisfying God, His wrath because of sin. Only sacrifice can do that. It's the altar that represents that. It's the altar that represents access to God. So the angel takes that burning coal, and then the angel did something. Verse 7, Isaiah writes, He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Here's the God of mercy giving Isaiah the very thing he needed. He said, My lips are unclean. And the God of mercy cleansed those lips that represented Isaiah's sin. And the effect is instantaneous here, the way it's worded. In fact, the verbs has touched and is taken away. They they connect. And so the stress is that as soon as one happened, the touching, the other absolutely happened also, the taking away. Taking away what? Well, Isaiah uses two different terms for what he's being cleansed of. He says he was guilty of iniquity. That's a word that summarizes his position of guilt. That's what guilt is in Scripture. It's not a feeling. It's a position, whether you feel it or not. If you're guilty, you're guilty. This guiltiness is, a, is an obstacle that keeps us from standing before God and experiencing His forgiveness. But God says that He takes it away. And second, Isaiah says that his sin was forgiven. Not just one sin, every sin, any sin. That's what the altar represented. The need for propitiation. God's wrath being satisfied. It is sacrifice for sin that propitiates. 
God's wrath against sin. And that needed sacrifice was applied to Isaiah. His sin was atoned for so that God didn't treat Isaiah according to his sin. What a contrast to what he could have expected. At the very least, God banishing Isaiah from his presence forever, but no, God orchestrated even this vision. God brought Isaiah into this experience of this vision to teach him this, not, not to give him, give him despair, to cause him to be hopeless, but to lead him to this, to confession, because confession leads to cleansing. And that is significant for all ministry opportunities. The one who desires to serve God must be one who's experienced this, the forgiveness of sin. One whose iniquity is pardoned because it's then, knowing we're forgiven, that we can speak the glories of God with confidence. Matthew Henry wrote this, None are so fit to display to others the riches and power of gospel grace as those who have themselves tasted the sweetness and felt the influence of that grace. Henry goes on to write, Those shall have their sin taken away who complain of it as a burden and see themselves in danger of being undone by it. That's who we are. It's who I am. I'm not someone who deserves to proclaim truth about what it means to walk with the Lord every day. I'm a sinner. And spoiler alert, when you look at those missionaries out there on that board in the lobby, Every single one of them is a sinner. Each missionary that we support, so is each person serving in some capacity in this church. We're not special servants. We are forgiven servants. But if I dwelt on the awareness of my sin, I would be in despair. Again, in ministry, we have to talk about things. We have to talk about this holiness of God. We have to talk about sin. We have to talk about purity and and living a holy life. And if we're overwhelmed with our unclean lips, we have despair and a sense of defeat. But God is merciful, and he loves to display that mercy to sinners. And when I ponder that fact, even pondering the fact that I'm a worse sinner than I think I am, because he knows that, then I ponder that I'm also the recipient of his grace and mercy, I ponder the fact that I'm not only more sinful than I think I am, but I'm even more accepted than I think I am. And that stirs up a fresh zeal to want to proclaim the mercies of God to other sinners. Well, finally, for the first time in the vision, the Lord speaks. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord, Adonai, saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? It's Adonai again, the sovereign one speaking. But don't misunderstand God's question here. He's not looking around asking someone else who's standing around for some advice. He's the omniscient, all-wise God. He knows everything. This sovereign God was consulting only with himself, asking himself, Whom shall I send? And he already knew the what his answer was, Isaiah. Even Isaiah the sinner. It's Isaiah whose sin was atoned for, now reconciled with God. And that's why Isaiah now also had the freedom to speak up to God 
and to seek to be involved in God's purposes, makes that great statement in verse 8, then I said, here am I, send me. Note how willingly he responded to God's forgiving grace and mercy. He's volunteering, but he's not being prideful here. He's not saying, send me, Lord. I mean, you've seen what I already knew. I'm really a great guy. I mean, you've noticed my giftedness probably, Lord. And I was homeschooled, you know, Lord. I was raised in a Christian family. I'm a great teacher. It's none of that. He answers in genuine humility, but yet he does say what he says with a measure of confidence as well because he knew that he had the assurance of the forgiveness of his sins. That's not the motive for obedience and serving by, by many people. Many are obeying and even performing, hoping to be accepted by God. I had a conversation with a pastor last night from another state called just seeking some wisdom on, a, on an issue going on, and we were talking about a, some related issues, and I made the statement that you want to be careful to help this person not slip into being a practicing Roman Catholic. I mean, as wrong as Roman Catholicism is, it's a great error, error in a false system Others who proclaim to be Christians can easily default to to start becoming practicing Roman Catholics. How? By practicing penance. It's not a biblical concept, this idea of penance, doing things to somehow offset the bad things, to earn God's favor, to somehow perform so that He'll accept me and I'll make myself worthy to Him in some way and counteract all the bad. That's not the gospel. The gospel says that in Christ we are completely accepted. And then out of that, we love to obey and serve. Still sinful, no doubt, but accepted. So that's Isaiah. He had that assurance, had that confidence. And therefore, he could with humility and confidence believe that God could use him somehow. I mean, what an act of divine condescension that is. Not only forgiving us, But the fact that the holy triune God would actually choose to use featherweights like you and me and Isaiah, that's the only reason he ever uses me. That's the only reason he uses any of our missionaries or any of our church members, not because of our worthiness, but because of who he is. He keeps humbling sinners, taking them to the gospel, to know Christ. And and even as time goes on, he continues to humble us, to cause us to go back to the gospel of what it means to be accepted in Christ. And when we ponder again the reality of that complete forgiveness, that complete acceptance, we can confidently and freely serve him in the ministry. And that is what motivates us to be willing and ready to joyfully serve the Lord and to go wherever in the world He determines for us to go. Just one more thing about this scene and this call to ministry. Do you know that Isaiah was not sent out on his mission with any illusions about its great success? 
We don't have time to go into it today, but if you keep reading, you find that God tells him that the effect of his ministry would be to actually deepen the spiritual deadness and blindness of the people that he would preach to, of the nation. There's something similar there for all of us. The results of what we do is not in our hands. They're not in our hands. Our duty is just to be faithful. It's God who determines all the results according to his sovereign plan. Well, Isaiah needed something that we all need. And there's something here that should characterize every ministry then, whether you're serving in Sunday school or teaching or setting up and cleaning up for events or serving as a missionary or just seeking to serve faithfully in your family at home. In every case, you need this, a right view of God. We can serve God effectively if we've seen Him as He is, but our vision of God comes through Scripture now that is completed. And we need that right view of self that a right view of God will always lead to. Because a great hindrance in serving and in ministry is pride and the sense of self-sufficiency. But we see God as He is in Scripture, and that leads us to seeing the truth about ourselves. And then that leads to seeking forgiveness from the Lord and then resting in that forgiveness. And then we find something else here, a desire to be used by Him. That's normal, see, for us. It should be. To get a right view of God, a right view of self, and then out of that to have a desire to be used by God. Those who have a right view of God and a right view of self will devote themselves unreservedly to serving Him. You don't have to press them into service and beg. They'll be eager to volunteer, to serve in whatever capacity will further the kingdom's work here or around the world. And they'll not be deterred by the difficulty along the way or the painfulness of the service. Like I said, Isaiah experienced great difficulty, but he didn't shrink back. He kept going back and pondering this vision of God's sovereignty and His holiness and His mercy. And the same is true for us. We go back to that truth of what Scripture teaches us about those things, and we'll only care about this. Lord, how can I serve You and bring glory to You? And God only demands one thing from us, not success as we define it, but faithfulness. One more thing I should also then say about this vision. It's something we learn from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 41. And I pointed it out when we were there in John, chapter 12, verse 41. It's in a section where Jesus was foretelling of his death. And John quotes, references this passage in Isaiah, John 12, 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. And there his and him refer to Jesus. John is helping us understand that the one that Isaiah saw on the throne was none other than Christ himself. So when we say our mission's all about God and our living is all about God, it's the same thing as saying it's all about Christ. The cleansing of sin that's necessary to know and serve the Lord with freedom is only found in Christ. The fire from the altar represented atonement for sin, and that's only found in Christ, in His death on the cross. 
and his resurrection from the dead. So I have two prayers this morning. If you don't know Christ, it starts there. I pray that you would come to experience this merciful cleansing from your sin that will set you on a new path of living for him. It's only found in Christ as you come to recognize your sinfulness and you cannot save yourself and you cry out to the Lord, please save me. I flee to you for forgiveness as my Lord and my Savior. If you are saved from your sin, then my prayer is that you will spend yourself in ministry. It may be that you need to take ministry here in this church and sacrifice here in this church more seriously. Some of the men in our church need to seriously consider seminary training. What a privilege it is that we're part of the Expositors Seminary here, right here on our campus, training men to serve the Lord. Some here need to think seriously about serving the Lord in missions. Whatever the case, may God motivate you to say to the Lord, here am I, send me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this fresh look at you, who you are. We are in reverence and awe before you this morning, once again getting that that vision of you from your word, of your sovereignty and your holiness and your great mercy and loving kindness. So Lord, I pray for anyone here who's never come to experience the forgiveness of their sin, to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, that you would open their hearts to repent and believe today and to follow Him. For all of us, Lord, help us to search our own hearts to see how we can be used in the maximum way with the time that we have and the opportunities we have to serve you. Lord, anywhere you want us to go, we'll go. Anything you want us to do, we will do. We want your will to be done. In our Savior's name, amen.